Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This week's guest has just stepped into one of the most challenging jobs in Australian sport. Rugby Australia boss Rob Clark has a to-do list as long as your arm. Sitting right at the top is the task of creating a new competition to get fans' hearts racing again. A competition to sell to a broadcaster for at least enough money to allow the game to survive at all levels and maybe even thrive. This is the Playmakers Playbook brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McCarvel, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Rob Clark is Rugby Australia's Interim Chief Executive Officer. He answered an SOS after the sudden departure of former CEO Raylene Castle. May 7 was the day he walked into the job, ready to write a new chapter for Australian rugby. Well, it's a new day. Past is the past. And I don't think there's any uh, advantage dwelling on the past. My focus is the task the board's given me over the time that I'll be sitting in the chair as an interim CEO. There's a lot to do and already we've had a management meeting and we're getting stuck into it. Well, that was Rob Clark on day one in the job in early May. Time flies when you're having fun. Rob, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Thank you, Nick. Nice to be here. How would you describe your time so far back in the game as uh, interim CEO of Rugby Australia? Uh, hectic would probably be the best term I'd say Nick it's been a busy time it's only been five and a half weeks and uh, it feels like a lifetime already but I'm pleased that we're making progress on a range of fronts and hopefully people are starting to look at rugby again in a new light we're going to talk about uh, some of that progress shortly you have a lifelong passion for rugby you were part of one of the the great Australian schoolboy sides 1981 it was. It was a fantastic time to leave school and go on a tour like we did. It uh, was just a dream and some of the players that we had there went on to become you know, legends of the game. Uh, the likes of Michael Liner and uh, Steve Tyneman and the Burke brothers back then uh, and many others. And, and it was just a fabulous way to end school and start a new life and play rugby around the world. So uh, that, that passion has continued. You went to Shaw School in Sydney, and it is worth noting that, uh, that RA Chairman Hamish McLennan went to Shaw, current board member Phil War went to Shaw, former Chairman Michael Hawker went to Shaw, as did former CEO Bill Pulver. He also went to Shaw. So the question is begged, is rugby administration actually taught as a subject at the Shaw School? <laughs> Probably should be, based on that list. Yes, look, it comes up from time to time and certainly the media have some fun with that. And um, all I would say to you, Nick, is that the missing part of some of that list is that a number of those people reside in Mossman, whereas <laughs> I no longer reside in Mossman. I'm now in Manly at 2095, so you can't pin that part on me any right, so longer. That, that stereotype does not apply. <laughs> all doesn't. right. Um, all of that, though, points to you being absolutely, uh, to, the, to the core, a rugby man. Um, does the CEO of this organisation need to have rugby in their DNA to succeed? Great question, and I think that's something the board is currently grappling with when they're 
looking to shape the brief for the person that's going to take this role permanently. My, my feeling is that it helps greatly. I think the ability that I had to step into this interim role and pick up uh, all the loose ends that were um, uh, needing to be addressed only came about because I had history in the game, I had relationships in the game, both at a state union level and the national level. And so I was able to hit the ground running. And it's a complex web, the rugby web, both here in Australia and internationally. And so I think it certainly helps to know how that web is constructed and what spiders are on the web, and there are some spiders on the web um, that you want to stay away from and others that you want to cuddle up to. And so I think um, it is important, and I think where the the state of the game now and the challenges facing the game, my personal belief is if the next CEO had rugby experience and relationships in the game, doesn't matter at what level, it would certainly help them to address the immediate challenges in the game. It doesn't mean it can't be solved by somebody externally over time, but if we want to keep the momentum that we're trying to build now and address those challenges, then I think it helps. Would you go so far as to say it needs to be something that's considered during the recruitment process? Well, I know it is being considered. There was a good debate around the board table the other day around this very topic. Does the new CEO need to have rugby experience could it be just a, a, a person that has sports administration experience, so broader sports administration experience, or just somebody out of the commercial world? And my view is that um, if you go back over the history of CEOs in Rugby Australia from John O'Neill to Gary Flowers to John O'Neill to Bill Pulver to Raylene Castle... They all brought different skill sets. Many of them brought just commercial skill sets. They might have been a part of the rugby fraternity in the broader sense, but they weren't rugby administrators. They brought commercial skills, and that plays an active part and an important part. But um, you could say that now with the challenges facing the game, do we just need those commercial skills, or does it help to have both commercial skills and rugby experience to try and capitalise on the opportunities that are presenting themselves? I think it's the latter. Can I ask then, that's your view, where did that discussion land with the board? I think there's a broad uh, broad canvas of views at the board uh, and I think the general feeling is that we need to keep it open uh, for the first round at least uh, and then uh, see where that shortlist ends up. Interesting. All right. What sort of leader are you? What, what's your leadership style? Well, you could probably ask a variety of people that have had dealings with me over the years and you get different answers, Nick. But my my preferred style is one that I'd characterise as a servant leadership type of approach. I'm not an autocratic leader. I'm not somebody who bangs the table and shouts orders and expect people to jump. I very much believe that success, be it in a team sport or be it in an environment in business as a team that you're building uh, can only be achieved if you have talented people uh, supported to be the best that they can be and achieve their goals. And as a leader, I firmly believe that uh, if I can support them and release them and their talents into the particular roles they're playing, then I will bathe in reflected glory because they're achieving and 
by virtue of the fact that I might have the CEO title, the organisation will be achieving. So I call that servant leadership. I think it's an important part of how you engage people. I think it's important to get to know people personally and their personal lives. They're not just here as a number fulfilling a job in an organisation. They're human beings who it, it behoves the CEO to get to understand them as people. And, and only when you do that can you actually, I think, bring out the best in people. And that has, I would imagine, been uh, magnified by the situation we're in at the moment in terms of you know, really caring for people and how they're going. A, the restructure, and we'll talk about that in more depth in a little while, but also the fact of uh, the fact that people are on the stand down. They're at home. They're not here face to face. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, just a weird world we're living in. And I crave human connection, I must say. And, and to come into the office and only have maybe half a dozen people around at any one time and most of my interactions done looking down a camera uh, on a TV screen... Uh, is not something that I actually enjoy that much. I like the human interaction. I like the dynamic that comes from people being around a table, bouncing off each other and feeding into whatever the objective is you're trying to achieve. So COVID has, has, has proven difficult for me in that sense in coming back into the workplace and into a workplace that's just totally different than what I have enjoyed in the past. Um, for the people at home, I know that you know the novelty of of the beginning of it where you could work from home and go and have a coffee up the street and walk your dog and all that sort of stuff was great and and the feedback was really positive but I think as it drags on I'm getting a sense that people just want to get back Mm. into the workplace and engage again and laugh again with their mates and have fun with that dynamic that you can only get by working closely and interacting closely with people so um it's been a challenging time in that sense. It's been obviously a challenging time for, for those people that uh, will no longer have roles in Rugby Australia. And, and I feel that deeply. I do care for people and, and I know the knock-on effect and the human impact of that is not just the individual but often a wife or a partner or a husband and families. And you, know, you don't underestimate that when you're making the decisions you have to make. But that said the organisation needed to be restructured. We needed to take cost out of the organisation and that's what we've done and there'll be some further fine-tuning of that as the rest of the year goes on. While you are a rugby man, you're also an advertising and a marketing man, an expert in brand strategy. Um, Can you just, a broad brush perhaps, of your uh, advertising career before you got into rugby? It seems like a lifetime ago, Nick. Yeah, so when I finished university, I ended up at a, a wonderful international advertising agency called J. Walter Thompson uh, here in Sydney, and, and I had the opportunity to go with them to London and work for three years in London just after Carly and I got married in the, uh, the mid-'80s, and, um, and that was a fabulous time. I came back, worked for another couple of agencies, ended up at Leo Burnett and, and stayed at Leo Burnett for the bulk of my advertising career for nearly 10 years. Uh, ended up running Burnett in this part of the world here in, in New Zealand and it was just a great time. It was in the halcyon days of advertising. I think it's changed a bit since then. FBT certainly killed <laughs> some of the fun aspects of advertising. Um, but I, I, I look back on those times fondly. I learnt a lot. Uh, I appreciate, obviously, the importance of brands, of, of communication and and how to engage with audiences and and. That's a key part of what the rugby product has to do. We are ultimately 
fighting in the entertainment space. And that brings its challenges but wonderful opportunities. And, uh, and I think how we market our business and how we communicate with our stakeholders and our fans is just critical in getting the solutions right. You uh, sometimes, or you, you hear people say that you learn more during really tough times in business. Do you feel like uh, you ever faced as tough a time in the advertising industry as you are now? And, and how did the advertising in- industry shape your leadership style? Yeah, look, every business goes through tough times uh, in tough economic cycles, etc. I do remember when I was uh, when I was running Leo Burnett here, uh, our largest client was Woolworths. And uh, we had created the Fresh Food People campaign for Woolworths way back, which is a famous campaign that they still have certain elements in their in their current uh, marketing program that retain those those uh, uh, fresh food ingredients, for want of a better term. Um, and we lost that account. I remember the CEO of Woolworths at the time. I won't mention his name. Called me into his office and said, "Look, it's time. We need a change." And uh, you're gone. And I had to go back that day and essentially over the following three days, we had to let 35 people go. Mm. Uh, It was a major account and it impacted a lot of people. So that was tough. Similarly, fast forward 20 years, uh, what we've had to do in rugby uh, in recent times here at Rugby Australia uh, is is commensurate with that. It's never easy. Uh, I'm sure it can always be done better. Uh, but I feel that um, it's important to confront the tough decisions in business. You can't run away from them. You can't paper over them. Uh, when the decisions have to be made, well, then that's the leader's job to make them and do it in the most humane and compassionate way. After the advertising industry, you uh, then later in your career venture back to, to rugby, uh, first as CEO of the Brumbies and, and then the Melbourne Rebels. How is leading a rugby business different to leading an advertising agency? Is there much difference perhaps no i think there's more similarities uh, i th- i see uh, the makeup of a, the business of rugby is quite similar in the sense that you know in in advertising you have business people you have creative people you have um, logistics people uh, and you and they are all in the melting pot that have to work together to produce a great advertising campaign And I think it's similar in rugby. You have your business side of the game. You have your players who you could call the creative people. um, And you've got logistics in and around all of that to help pull it together and put on events and matches. And that's all in the melting pot. And that has to all, you know, somehow symbiotically create something great. And, um, And so the principles are similar the circumstances might be different. The product certainly different, but I think the, um, the 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 principles that link it all together, and that reach towards a great outcome are very very similar. Interesting. After the the rebels, you were the chief operating officer here at Rugby Australia. You left in 2017. Now you find your way back into the game at, at what everyone agrees is a very challenging time for Australian rugby. With your advertising guru hat on. Um, how would you describe the game's brand in Australia right now? Not sure I was ever a guru, Nick. Oh, it's, it's a good uh, word, though. But yeah, no, nice word, but maybe for others. Um, <laughs> look, I think our brands, our brands are still strong. Uh, I, I think the 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 development of both, um, you know, rugby as a brand, 
the individual brands within rugby, be it the Super Rugby Clubs, be it the Wallabies, etc., um, are still well known and and are resilient. That said, they might have lost some of their shine, and you want your brand to shine. And what I mean by that, you want it to be recognised, you want it to be seen as attractive, you want people to be uh, wanting to ascribe to that and be a part of whatever that brand stands for. And I think at various levels of our game, we've probably got some challenges there. Uh, But I do believe that, uh, and I've seen it happen in the past, you can turn that around very quickly. It doesn't actually take that much to turn it around. And I think the elements that we're trying to put in place and the building blocks at a Wallaby level um, will help to get the shine back onto the Wallaby brand. And I know the effort and work going in at the Super Rugby level by each of those organisations and working in with our teams here at Rugby Australia um, will uh, all be pointing towards trying to re-establish and get those brands to resonate with the audiences again and with our fans and with our partners and commercial partners Uh, So I'm an optimist and I'd only be here if I was an optimist. Uh, So while I'm here doing this role, I'm going to do whatever we can to try and achieve those outcomes. What are the processes? I mean, it's interesting in sport when you hear players talk about not thinking about the end game, they're process driven, which is a situation that you need to be in now, being process driven. So when you arrived here, you got your feet under the table and you sat down. What is the process? What are those building blocks what was on the checklist? It was really clear, actually, um, which was reassuring to me. I mean, the, the first th- hurdle we had to jump was getting our accounts signed off and audited and lodged with ASIC to demonstrate that we are a going concern for the next 12 months. And there was a lot of speculation about our financial position, and rightly so. So that was number one priority. Put that to bed, and we did that within 10 days of me starting. Uh, I'm not saying it was all me, by the way, most of the work had been done, but that was the number one priority for me to make sure it got um, dealt with. The second thing was the restructure, drawing up the plan for the restructure to um, fulfil what the board wanted to see as far as um, reducing cost and headcount at RA. Uh, That has now been implemented um, and further work with our super rugby clubs around taking out duplication in parts of the business uh, and getting further efficiencies will continue uh, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, The third part was making sure we had a uh, return to play program and securing um, the teams to put a super rugby competition together to make sure through COVID with all of the restrictions and the medical uh, hurdles that needed to be jumped around community rugby to put that in place. And I'm pleased to say the whole game pulled together really well uh, to around every state and territory there is now commitment to a relaunch of the game at community level and the professional level, working within all the government restrictions and health guidelines of how to do that safely. So that was critical and of course allied to relaunching the Super Rugby revamp competition was to work with our broadcast partner in Fox Sports to um, reshape what that contract might look like because we aren't delivering the um, previous Super Rugby format to them. We're delivering an alternative. Uh, We aim to deliver a full rugby championship later this year, uh, most likely to be hubbed in Australia. 
uh, in a sort of a, a mini rugby world cup format. Uh, so that's exciting in itself. But we needed to work through with Fox just what we could deliver as content to them for the balance of the year and we needed to negotiate a financial outcome and I was really delighted that you know, Fox have been a partner in professional rugby since day dot, 1996. have put in an enormous amount of money and effort into our game and I was delighted to be able to work with Patrick Delaney and Pete Campbell to be able to deliver that for this year. And so those priorities were the ones that get us to today and we can tick those boxes and my next priority now is to secure what next year 2021 and beyond looks like and that will take up considerable energy effort (laughs) and uh, time we'll talk about that in just uh, a moment in a little more length i spoke to uh, a number of your staff after uh, that first all-staff zoom meeting that you had i I think it was almost on day one wasn't it where you you got everyone online it was um and even though many were on stand down uh, at that stage, they said that they felt, uh, the ones I spoke to said they felt quite positive, quite inspired by what you had to say. And all of that sort of feeds into um, trying to improve the, the culture here at RA. What did you say to them? What, what undertakings could you give in that situation? Well, I was reintroducing myself to a number of people I'd worked with in the past before I left in 2017, which was fantastic, a lot of familiar faces, and introducing myself to the first time for a lot of people that I didn't know. I think the important um, objective of that first meeting was to be totally open and honest and transparent with people about uh, what was to come. So I didn't gild the lily about uh, some of the tough decisions that were going to need to be made and the impact it was likely to have across the entire organisation. So I laid that clearly on the table and I probably threw in a bit of humour about an ugly shirt I might have been wearing. I mean, I've come under a lot of criticism for my wardrobe in the past here, Nick, and certain certain individuals still remain intact from those days and they were going to jump on me at some point, so I thought I'd just nip that in the bud. So a bit of self-deprecating humour goes a long way. You've clearly made an effort today so I have I, I well do I have to thank you for well that. I knew you were coming and I knew you're a man of sartorial elegance <laughs> and I thought that I better upgrade and go hard today so Very I'm nice. glad you appreciate that um, and and look I I just reassured them that there was a future uh, and and it can be a bright future but we're going to probably have to go through the valley a little bit further before we can climb the mountain and uh, and I mapped out to them what I thought those Uh, elements needed to be and how we would collectively as a team work through it so it was nothing more exotic uh, than that but I just think that maybe they were looking for a sense of clarity and uh, a dose of hope and we all need hope and and I think you know I hopefully tried to give them that sense is that at, at the at the heart of it because you know there'll be um, people in business who will be listening to this podcast who probably had to go through because of COVID similar things. They've they've had to stand down people. They've had to perhaps lay people off. Very hard, I would imagine, to maintain or improve a culture through that period of time. Yeah, it's challenging, but it's amazing how resilient people can be, and how when you appeal to people's um, sense of commitment to the future and give them a sense of hope and allow them to to sort of play their part into it 
how you can move the dial very quickly and uh, you can move the cultural dial, I think, quickly. As long as it's underpinned by, you know, the values of, of just honesty and transparency and, um, and give people clarity about what the future can look like. Uh, and if you if you if you can rally together and pull together, and it's not a one man band here, you know the, the success of Australian rugby is only going to be achieved through everybody in the game, be it being they're paid uh, to be a part of the game, and that's both staff and players, or the huge amount of volunteers around the country that turn the sausages every weekend, that wash the gear for the under sixes, etc. We need to rally as a collective to address the challenges in the game. And I'm getting a real sense that that is happening. I mean, just the sheer fact that we're going to be able to be playing the game again after, you know, a three-month hiatus around the country. Uh, there's people just champing at the bit, and I think that's what they need. They just need to get out and get start playing again. And, you know, when you're starting to play again, um, it fills the void that often gets filled when there's no activity with negativity. And we've seen that and it's come from various quarters. Uh, and I, sp- I have spent time over the last five weeks going and meeting with some of these individuals and talking about just the way I see it and what I'm trying to achieve and encouraging them to get on board in a constructive way because collectively we can address all of these issues. And it's important to do it in the right way because every negative message that may be put out there into the marketplace actually hurts the game. And, and it hurts it in multiple ways. It hurts it in terms of how fans are feeling about the game, how the players are looking at the game and saying, well, is there hope for me here? Um, potential commercial partners who might have been wanting to invest in a sponsorship at some level in the game thinks, oh, maybe I'll just hold off for now. We've got to stop all of that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm delighted to actually see that most of the rhetoric, most of the focus now out in the media is positive and is looking forward to what the future can look like. Um, without being too sycophantic, I'd have to say that that could be largely put down to your communication skills. I mean, you, you're a good communicator. You've gone and, and sought that contact as well. Is, that, is there something in that? Well, I just believe in confronting these things. You can't bury your head on this stuff because it's not going to go away. And so where there are, where there are issues to be dealt with, I just believe that you need to nail them and I'll tell this and I'm sure um, this person won't mind my first phone call I made on Thursday the 7th of May when I walked into my office was to the chairman of Rugby WA John Edwards because I knew for a fact based on my involvement with the previous administration and and the very very difficult decision that was made around reducing a team, and that team being the Western Force. I knew that um, my name is not necessarily um, lauded over in the West. Well, just for a bit of context, because at the time you were associated with having basically booted the yeah, that's Western correct. Force that, out. That, that's that, correct. Yeah. And so I felt it was important to reach out to John and my opening remarks to John when he took my call probably came up as an unknown number to him um was um was john this is a voice that i'm sure you didn't want to hear again uh, in rugby but here i am and look we uh we raked over a few old coals quickly but then very rapidly moved on to 
uh, it's all about the future and how can we build the future of the game and incorporate the West into that. And, and he's been incredibly supportive ever since. So, you know, I suppose that just goes to my way of dealing with issues. I think you just have to confront them and, and manage your way through it. And there's always a way to manage your way through it once you get uh, the issues on the table and you can uh, eradicate those things that can't be dealt with but, but focus on the commonalities. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing. It seems that a lot of those things that you uh, that you ticked off as having achieved so far, a lot of those could be put in the the survival box. They had to happen for survival. Are we just on the the brink now? Is the game on the brink of actually repolishing the brand as you as you mentioned? Look, I hope so, and I think there's there's initiatives happening around the globe in our game that could have a significant bearing on what the future looks like. So. The discussions around getting alignment to a global season between the South and the North, uh, whilst they haven't concluded successfully yet, there is some very, very um, strong alignment forming and that could have a major bearing on the opportunities for our game here in Australia and, and, and internationally. Um, I think the uh, areas around law variations. You know, our game is a complex game and it's difficult for some, some people to understand it. Uh, that said, I think we now have the ability to, to innovate and bring law variations in that can help to simplify the game and speed up the game and address some of those bugbears that people have um, that might turn them off our game. And we're going to be introducing a number of those into the Super Rugby competition this year. But equally, World Rugby is looking at those as well from, a, from an international point of view. So that's, a, that's an important initiative. Uh, I believe that at super rugby level, because of COVID, we have the opportunity for the first time to, to re-look at competition structures and teams within those structures. And we're obviously doing something locally this year. But what next year could look like, I think, could be exciting as well. And there are various models that play into that um, and nothing has been set yet. However, I think the opportunity to do something exciting is there and, and that may address some of the... Um, historical issues that have, have, have bugged Super Rugby uh, over recent years. So that's, that's an upside. Um, I think Dave Rennie joining us as national coach. Uh, in my dealings with Dave over the last few weeks, and that's only been over the phone, but um, I, I think he's going to bring a lot to the Wallaby program. And, and I like his style and his character, and I think that will be an important new direction for the Wallabies. So... Whichever way you look at the game, internationally, locally, uh, the community game we know is healthy, is strong, the club rivalry, the tribalism and everything is there. We need to support that further, but we need to get ourselves into position first to be able to support it further. And that's you know, going to be a byproduct of some of these other initiatives. Um, impressive too from Dave Rennie to take a massive pay cut in terms of leadership that's going to get a few people on board isn't it and, and he volunteered it mm. he volunteered it. he said I don't want to be seen as as left out of this if the pain's being felt by the staff then I need to feel the pain um, a, a good leader needs to have uh, vision but coupled with that vision is the ability to take people on that journey uh, with them to, to that destination. And I'm thinking in particular here about um, Peter Wiggs, for example. He had a brief stint on the board recently. He had, he had a vision and it was you know, ultimately probably um, fairly impressive. Uh, he really wanted to shake things up, but what he wasn't able to do was take everyone 
along the way with him. How important is that? Get everybody on the bus. Well, it's critical. It's critical, and, and I don't want to opine on what transpired through that period because I wasn't involved, but uh, what I would say, a vision is only as good as your ability to implement it. And there are plenty of people that have had vision in all sorts of parts of the world and, and walks of life, but if you can't actually deliver and implement it uh, and execute on it, then it's hollow and it's not going to achieve. And so I think uh, the two things have to be coupled together, have the vision and then have a plan and a team to be able to execute that vision and, and, and be uh, diligent around doing it. And, you know, because time, frankly, for us is of the essence right now. So the energy and commitment to actually nailing some of these uh, issues that we're facing is critical. And unfortunately today we've got some momentum behind some of those we've talked about already today but there's more to come and so we've just got to keep cracking on. And under that banner of more to come, and I know there's a lot of work being done on this, what is your vision uh, for a competition that is, is good enough for the game and, and good enough to sell to broadcasters and actually get some uh, very healthy broadcast revenue through the door? There are two or three models that we're analysing at the moment that we believe could deliver on those outcomes. So we need to work with our SANSAR partners on that. We need to work uh, internally with our um, own stakeholders and super rugby clubs. Uh, they're a, a vitally important part of the mix. We need to work with Rupert and the players uh, to make sure that whatever competition structure is, is created for next year addresses some of the fundamental challenges the players have had out of the previous competition structure, and that's around player welfare, it's around travel, it's around recovery. And, of course, then we need to pitch this to potential broadcasters and uh, and excite them about what rugby can deliver for them. And the beauty about next year is we're going to have the ability to not only deliver a full uh, rugby championship at the Wallaby level, the international level, but we will be able to deliver international tests through inbound program. We will have a reworked Super Rugby format, however that ends up playing out. And importantly, we will have club rugby to underpin everything um, that is available to be broadcast, uh, both here in New South Wales and in Queensland and through streaming opportunities for the other states. So um, whichever way you look at it, there's a comprehensive package. I think it's an attractive package. Uh, rugby is still alive and well out there. There's still a lot of people that love our game. And uh, the value of that to commercial partners, I think, is significant. And we need to demonstrate that and we need to start performing on the field to reward that. The previous administration attempted to create a uh, competitive environment in that broadcast space. Is that something that is still a realistic option or is it really just Fox at this point? Look, my job is to set up the game for a successful future and to be successful we need to be financially viable. So whatever we need to do to bring the right financial underpinning to the game uh, is something that we take seriously and therefore we will look to whatever options are available to us to deliver the financial underpinning to take our game forward. And then there are also some uh, bigger, uh, bigger picture issues down the track. The World Cup, how important is the World Cup? 2027 to Australia? Critical. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. We know the Rugby World Cup is the third largest 
sporting event in the world. So for our game uh, to host again uh, would be just sensational here in Australia. For the economy, I think it is a wonderful fillip because it's a multi-billion dollar um, outcome for the economy. So we're looking forward to the support from the federal and state governments. Uh, We announced this week the advisory board that's going to help guide us through this bid process. Uh, And these are leading uh, international executives who um, Hamish has been able to, uh, to put together. And so it's an exciting project. It's critically important. We're going to throw everything at it to try and ensure that we win it. Private equity. Can private equity be good for the game? I think it can in the right way. Um, and in a way, we've had private equity involved here at super rugby level in the past. So there's been private ownership of the Rebels in the past and, uh, and, and other clubs have, have toyed with it. I think um, it needs to be done carefully. We need to have an asset that actually is valuable uh, before we go and really entertain those sorts of conversations. There are a number of private equity organisations that have reached out to us and want to have conversations, and that's, that's nice to know. Um, that said, it needs to be done correctly. It needs to be done at a time where we have an asset of significant value that we believe uh, private equity can help take a stake in and then take it further. And that might take some time to get to that point. All right. As we wrap up, what have you learned about yourself over the past few weeks since uh, since landing your backside in the chair here at Rugby Australia? Uh, I've learned I can survive on uh, fewer hours sleep again um, because that's certainly the way things have been for the last five weeks or so. Uh, I've learnt to deal with your mind racing during the night and coming up with ideas and how to capture them and not forget them by the morning. I've learnt how much I love the game, again, uh, and I've never lost that love, but I think just the passion that uh, surrounds sport, particularly rugby, uh, and that can be both positive and negative at times, but you've got to take the good with the bad. I think um, that has just been great to be part of the team again, to be part of the cut and thrust and to be in a position I suppose here while I'm here to actually make a difference is what is driving me on. I think you know the game and the challenges facing the game uh, requires some energy and commitment and, um, and, and sort of rallying call if you like to those who might have been a little disconnected from the game to come back and get in behind what we're trying to achieve. And it certainly won't be just me. It will be every single person that's touching our game uh, at every level. But I want to give them a sense of hope and a, a bit of a plan as to what the future might look like so they should have hope. Uh, and, you know, it's just great to be back and part of it. You say while you're here, you're still adamant it is only going to be six months or so? I made it very clear uh, from day one when Paul McLean reached out to me to see if I'd do this gig that it is interim and that's still the case. I won't be putting my name forward for the CEO role. It feels like a really pivotal time for the game right now. Um, circumstances and, and not forgetting the pain uh, that it has caused a lot of people in the game. But, but circumstances have provided the opportunity to, to really reshape things. Just finally, what are the qualities that we need uh, as fans of the game that we need from, from you, uh, from the next CEO and from leaders at board level to be able to, to shape a really bright future? Well, it goes back to uh, at least setting a vision 
that people can believe in. Uh, and, and, and I think that is very tangible. I think it needs honesty and transparency from all leaders within the game as to where we sit today and what the future can look like. I think there needs to be that word hope that we've used. We need to be able to put uh, um, elements around what hope means. What, what are we asking people to believe in? What are we asking them to get back involved in at every level of the game? And I think in some aspects that's clear, in other aspects it needs to be clarified. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly about the super rugby level there right now. Um, I genuinely believe that the, the heart of rugby is alive and well. It might be beating a little slower in certain parts, uh, but it won't take much to have it racing again. And, and that's our job this year is to get people's, you know, and our fans' hearts racing again as to why they love this game. And, and I think there's uh, all of the elements are there. We just need to pull it together, together and give people a clear sense of what that looks like. And that's, that's my task between now and the end of the year and I'll throw everything at it. And I wish you all the very best. Rob Clark, thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. My pleasure, Nick. It's great to be here. Rob Clark on this week's Playmakers Playbook. Australia's Super Rugby teams return to competition on July 3. The next step in getting the game back on track. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by Build Corp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. 